Hebrews chapter 9, and let's begin at verse 11. I want to read beginning at verse 11. It says, But Christ, being come and high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of bulls and of goats, or neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. We're going to be looking at verses 14 and 15, and 15 in particular today. This is where we are in our passage here in Hebrews chapter 9. By way of reminder, back in Hebrews chapter 8, the promises of the new covenant are articulated. And then in chapter 9 here, the writer has been explaining why the old covenant was not sufficient. The old covenant was not sufficient. And we see there the problems with it. In chapter 8, he said if that first covenant had been faultless, then should know that there should have been no place for seeking a second. But finding fault with them, he says, I am going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Of course, quoting back from the Old Testament, Jeremiah the prophet, Jeremiah chapter 31. So in chapter 9, the first 10 verses, we have described for us the earthly sanctuary and the earthly service of the sanctuary. And it's given to us, he pictures for us the Old Testament tabernacle. And he talks about the priests and how they went. He doesn't go into great detail, but he talks about their daily sacrificing. And then he talks about the high priest going in once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then he wraps it up there in verse 9, where he says all of that was a parable. That's what that word figure is. It's the Greek word for parable. And it means it's a figure, it's an example, it's not the reality, it is simply designed to illustrate the reality. And of course, what is the reality that the, tabern the earthly tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary, the earthly service of the Le Levitical priesthood, what was all that? It was a picture of, as we see in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 3 or actually verse 2, where Christ is a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord pitched, and not man. So there's an earthly tabernacle, but it's just a picture. And of course, the writer here is writing to Hebrew believers, and he's telling them this. And he is saying that this Old Testament, whole Old Testament system of worship 
which involved the tabernacle and the priests, all of that was pointing towards something greater. And it had its limitations. We see that it actually did cleanse in verse 13. If the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, and certainly, as we looked at last week, all of these sacrifices... And by saying there, the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of an heifer, and we talked about those ashes of an heifer that were burned outside of the camp, mixed with water and used as a water of purification, that the purification and the point of all of these sacrifices really was an external cleansing. It was ceremonial in nature. It had to do with the flesh, the outward And it was powerless to take care of the inward. It was powerless. In fact, we see the deficiency there in verse 9, Hebrews 9.9. It was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. So there was a limitation. There was a fault It was designed this way. It wasn't that uh, God's system that He gave the children of Israel for worship was, well, a mistake. But it was purposefully and deliberately inadequate as far as the inward cleansing that was necessary. It could not cleanse the conscience. Could not cleanse the conscience. However... Look at the great contrast in verse 14, and this is where he brings this out. He says, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works? That whole verse right there entails what is going on in the true tabernacle in the sanctuary where Jesus Christ is the high priest. And there, in that sanctuary, Jesus Christ entered into the very presence of God on the basis of His own shed blood, not the blood of animals. And there, as the spotless Lamb of God, He was the sacrifice offered to God. And that blood, the blood of Jesus Christ, is that which can purge our consciences from dead works. Now, I want us to look at this today. <clears throat> there's so much here, and there's, we could talk about this, and I really, it would, be, I, it would be much more enjoyable for me to actually sit down and to discourse this, but this is not the format in which we do this. And so I'll preach on this, but in a couple of weeks we will have our discussion. You'll be able to ask questions and um, give your thoughts on this. But um, there's so much, there's so much in this passage before us today and in these verses. It's um, something you can definitely meditate on for a long time. Um, The memorization of it will definitely aid you in your meditation on this passage, but it's very rich in theology and its um, significance for us. What I want us to note here, though, in verse 15, it says, And for this cause... He is the mediator. He is the mediator of the New Testament. 
Jesus Christ is our mediator. We've seen this term before, but I want to address it again. Jesus Christ is the mediator of the New Testament. There's another verse that helps us to understand what a mediator is there in the New Testament, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, which says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. There are no other mediators between man and God, though many religions out there are purporting to be a mediator, to mediate, to um, somehow bridge the gap between man and God. What is a mediator? What does he do? Well, remember what a mediator does. What's his role? A mediator is one who comes between two parties, two parties that are um, not getting along, They may be enemies, they may not be in agreement, but there's conflict. And what the mediator does is he comes between the two and he understands both sides and he tries to draw them to a point of agreement. Jesus Christ is our mediator. But the interesting thing is that Though there is conflict between God and man, the conflict is not on God's part. God has done nothing wrong. The conflict is all on our part. It is all on the part of man. Man is sinful. Man has broken God's law. Man has set himself up in rebellion against God's authority. And so this reconciliation of which Jesus Christ is the mediator really is one-sided when you think about the offense. And the mediator, what what is he attempting to gain? What is Jesus Christ doing as the mediator? Well, you think about this, there's conflict. Romans chapter 8 talks about the enmity between God and sinful man. There's there's war there. And what is necessary for God to be at peace with us? On the other hand, what is necessary for us to be at peace with God? And when you consider those two points, you will understand what Jesus Christ is doing as the mediator. He is the mediator. And as we look at the passage today, what we are going to see is that in this case, the mediator dies. The mediator dies. Why is it important that the mediator dies? Now, that's kind of an unusual arrangement. You think about mediation, you usually don't think about the mediator being the one that dies. You look throughout the Old Testament sacrificial system, and you see the animals being sacrificed, and the high priest there going and mediating between the people, but we never see the high priest being offered as a sacrifice. 
Yet in this instance, it says in chapter in verse 15, for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, through the means of death, and it goes on. So we're talking about the mediator dying. I want us to consider, though, <clears throat> what we're doing in this passage. What is going on? Jesus is our mediator. He's a high priest. He's the high priest mediator between God and man. He is mediating this new covenant. Think about the old covenant. Who was it made with? The old covenant was made with Old Testament Israel. It's not made with us. It wasn't made with Gentiles. The Old Covenant was made with Old Testament Israel. And of course, we are, it, it is revealed to us here in Hebrews, in chapter 8 in particular, that that old, co- that old covenant has been set aside. It has been annulled. It has been, we're talking about the, Mos- we're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, that Sinaitic Covenant, given them at Sinai. They broke the covenant. God did not regard them. It has been, in other words, it's been fulfilled. God has set that aside, and we have a new covenant. The new covenant of which Jesus Christ is the mediator. For us to be at peace with God and for God to be at peace with us, what must happen? Why is God not at peace with man? Because man has sinned. And what does the scripture tell us? What is God's view of sin? Well, God hates sin. God will not abide sin in His presence. Sin separates man from God. The Scripture tells us that God's law says, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Death is the penalty for sin, for the wages of sin is death. What did God tell Adam and Eve in the garden? Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the day that you eat thereof, you will surely, what? Die. Death. The wages of sin is death. And of course, we're talking about not just spiritual death, but there's also physical death as a result of sin. But death as in separation from God. For God to be at peace with us, the sin problem has to be dealt with. There has to be remission. Look at verse 15. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For God to be at peace with us, there must be forgiveness. Another word the scripture uses is propitiation, and he is our propitiation, Jesus Christ being the propitiation. It's a big word, but that word propitiation means to bring about peace, to, um, to suppress or to deal with, to get rid of anger, to appease. For God to be at peace with us, there must first of all be forgiveness. Forgiveness of sin or remission of sin. That word remission, talk about remission. We don't use that word very often. What does the word remission mean? It means to, to cancel out. 
Have you ever seen on a bill where it says, please remit? At least it used to. Maybe they don't use those words anymore. But it would say, please remit. And you, you would be handed your bill. And your bill would say what you had purchased, and it would give the total. And here's the total that you owe. You are, you've taken the product. You now have a debt. You must remit or cancel that debt by payment. And so we talk about remission. Remission is the canceling of a debt. And as sinners, we are indebted. We owe God. We've been placed in debt because we have sinned. And for God to be at peace with us, our sin must be forgiven. His wrath must be propitiated. Our debt must be remitted. And for us to be at peace with God, what needs to happen? For us to be at peace with God, our consciences have to be cleansed. Our consciences have to be cleansed. And there in verse 14, the blood of Jesus Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, his blood has the power to purge our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We talked a little bit about conscience last week. What does a guilty conscience do? It destroys peace. A guilty conscience destroys peace. And what is conscience? Conscience is really that which God has placed into man. It is proof of God's creation. It is the proof of the existence of God. It is His law written in the hearts and minds of men. And the best passage to explain that is found back in Romans. Romans chapter 2. And Paul there speaking of the Gentiles, back in Romans chapter 2, He says there in verses 14 and 15, Romans 2, 14 and 15, by the way, is a great passage for teaching your children about conscience. He says, For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law are law unto themselves. So what does Paul say about the Gentiles? He's talking about Gentile behavior. And by Gentiles, he's talking about anyone who was not a Jew. Who did God give his law to? He gave it to Moses at Sinai. The Jews had the oracles of God. They'd been given God's law, the Ten Commandments, the whole code for their living had been given to the Jews. It wasn't given to the Gentiles. It wasn't given to the Medes or the Persians. Or all the, you know, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Hittites, the Mosquitoites, and all those ites there in the land as they were coming in. They weren't given the law. But all of those societies functioned. They had their own systems of governance. And even in their systems of governance, there were traces of God's law. It was, it's against the law in any culture to murder someone. It's against the law to steal, to lie. These things are against the law. And why have people, I'm talking about people unrelated to Jews throughout history, 
why have they written these laws against murder? Against stealing and against lying and, and, and the such. Why have they written these laws? Because when people do those things, what happens? There is an internal remorse. There is an internal guilt that comes upon them because they have violated God's law. People know it's wrong to do these things. Why do you think they commit crimes in the dark? They're trying to hide. They know it's wrong and they are guilty. So these Gentiles in verse 15, speaking of the Gentiles, they're a law unto themselves which show or demonstrate the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness in their thoughts the meanwhile accusing or else excusing one another. Your conscience either condemns you or commends you. When you do right, you feel right. When you do good, it's a good feeling. When you do wrong, there's guilt. There's guilt. And it's a little alarm that just keeps going off. And there's no snooze button. And the world tries to assuage their guilt, tries to dull the guilt with drugs, alcohol abuse. We've talked about this before. Entertainment, amusement, and all of these things to try to stifle the noisy conscience, to try to turn that alarm off. And they may be able to dull it for a while by hitting a snooze button with alcohol, drugs, but what happens? They're rendered incompetent, and as soon as they come to their senses, what happens? The, the guilt is compounded. And they even try to reprogram their conscience. And we talked about this <clears throat> last week, trying to re-educate or gather themselves with people who, who will uh, live in such a way and not call sin, sin, but try to uh, make it acceptable. What is, I mean, you look at our country today and what, what, what are people trying to do? They're trying to make that homosexual lifestyle normalized, trying to teach children in public schools that, that it's, it's not a sin. What did we see just this last week in the what, Supreme Court hearings that uh, this um, forget, oh, sexual preference and that nut from California said, oh, that's an outdated term. That's offensive. How dare you use that? No one can control. That's the way you're born. What a nut. Those are the kind of people that are trying. What are they trying to do? They're trying to reprogram the conscience in opposition to what God has declared to be sinful. In doing so, they are destroying the very foundations of society. For man to be at peace with God, he needs a cleansed conscience. A guilty conscience destroys peace. And that requires the death of the mediator. The death of the mediator. Listen, God must be satisfied before conscience can be at peace. And when you're dealing with conscience, you're dealing with the Creator. God has made us this way. 
we are hardwired this way. It's like the software that God has programmed man with. He has given man a conscience, and man knows the difference between right and wrong. And when you try to reprogram that, when you try to mess with the software, so to speak, you're trying to destroy what God has created. You are messing with the Creator. If you're going to be at peace with God, you're going to have to deal with the conscience. God, of course, to be at peace with us, He must remit or cancel that which my conscience is alarming me about. For there to be peace, how can that be done? How can that be done? How can man be at peace with God and God be at peace with man? Well, that's the work of our mediator, Jesus Christ. The Old Covenant could not make the worshiper perfect in conscience. It was not its design. But the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses the conscience because it satisfies God. God's plan is for the sinner to die. The soul that sinneth it shall die. And God will not be satisfied until sin is paid for with death. And this is the wonder of salvation in that God has provided a death in our place. It is the death of Jesus Christ, the mediator. In verse, back in Hebrews chapter 9 and in verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, Purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The dead works there, works that bring forth death, could be referring. Now, there are some commentators who say it's referring to sin, those works which result in death. And it can include that, but also I think it means here in the context of what is going on, he's talking about the works of or service under the old covenant that could not make the worshiper perfect in his conscience. Dead works. The whole Old Testament sacrificial system could not purify the conscience. These works were ineffective to cleanse the conscience. The blood of bulls and of goats in the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean. Sure, it sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. It allowed the individual to participate in the Levitical worship there at the tabernacle, but it could not cleanse the conscience. They were dead works as far as the conscience was concerned, and the conscience was not taken care of. The new covenant, the new covenant renders the conscience at peace through Jesus Christ, but it requires death. It requires a sacrifice that would be acceptable to God, and none of us fit the bill. There is no man living on this earth who could pay for his own sins acceptably 
to God without his being destroyed and sent to hell permanently. Because the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Man, there's a debt that's owed. And if man pays his debt, what happens? He dies. End of story. He is severed from the presence of God for eternity. And this is why Jesus, the Christ, Jesus Christ, the mediator, is the effective sacrifice who can cleanse our conscience and at the same time be the effectual remittance so that God can forgive us. I want us to note verse 15. It says, and for this cause, talking about purging our conscience, and for this cause, He, who is He? Speaking of Jesus Christ, He is the mediator of the New Testament. Let's read on. It says that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. This is a very interesting verse. Note what it says, speaking of Jesus Christ, the mediator of the New Testament. But why did he die? Well, sins must be paid for. Now when it says, for this cause, at the beginning of verse 15, and for this cause, when you see those words, it make it... You should actually stop and think. Is he referring to what he just said is the cause? Or is he referring to what he is about to say as the cause? Look at this. And for this cause, he's the mediator of the New Testament. What's it referring to? Well, when we look at the context, we find here that he is referring to what he's about to say. He says, and for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament. The next word, that by means, or so that. This is how it happens. So that by means of death. By means of death. And then the word, for the redemption, the payment of the transgressions that were under the First Testament. Well, that's interesting. What are the transgressions that were under the First Testament? How many of you have sinned under the First Testament? Anybody in here? No. We aren't alive. That testament was over. What is he talking about? He says, for the redemption of the, or the payment for the transgressions, or it says, of the transgressions, that were under the First Testament. Hmm, that's interesting. What, what sins were under the First Testament? Well, I can think of some right offhand. Was Moses under the Old Covenant? Certainly he was. Was Moses a sinner? He, yeah, he certainly was. He killed somebody. He murdered someone. <clears throat> um, what else when he was... 
when he was there and God told him to speak to the rock, he smites the rock instead. And God said, you did not sanctify me in front of the people. And Moses did not get to go into the promised land because of that. Moses was a sinner. How about David? Was David a sinner under the First Testament? Yes, he was. And what I want you to do is keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 9 and go back to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 12. I was thinking of this verse this week as I was looking at the context of this passage. 2 Samuel chapter 12. What's going on here? David has sinned with Bathsheba, and he has covered his tracks. And he thinks he's gotten away with it. Adultery, murder, Uriah has been killed, a baby's been born. All people know it's David's son, Bathsheba, and David thinks, well, he got away with it. What happens? Nathan the prophet comes in to speak to David. Nathan the prophet gives him that parable, the rich man and the poor man, the sheep, the pet lamb that the rich man came and stole from the poor family so he could feed his guest. And David, of course, becomes incensed. His anger was kindled greatly in verse 5. And he said, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And then Nathan looks at David and says, Thou art the man. You are the object of my story. You are the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. I gave thee thy master's house, thy master's wives into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had, not, had been too little, I would moreover have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised? the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword and hast taken his wife to be thy wife and hast slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. And then he goes on and says, and here's what is going to happen. There's going to be evil comes upon your house. Verse 12, For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. Now, what is David's response? The next words out of David's mouth, I have sinned against the Lord. But then note the next words out of the mouth of Nathan the prophet. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Wait a minute. How could that happen? What did Nathan say? He looked at David and said, you've been forgiven. How could he be forgiven? Who's, who's paying for this mess? There it says, the Lord hath put away thy sin. That's an interesting term. It means to set to the side. He has set aside your sin. Now, back to Hebrews chapter 9. Sins under the First Testament. Whose sins were under the First Testament? Well, certainly Moses, David, Samson, Rahab. These are names we see mentioned in chapter 11. 
in the hall of faith. How about Abraham? Abraham, he sold out his wife on a couple occasions trying to save his own skin. How about Adam and Eve? Look at this verse. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, what's the result? They which are called might receive the promise of eternal life or of eternal inheritance. What's going on here? What did God do in the Old Testament? I want you to, we're going we're gonna to cheat a little bit. I want you to look ahead. I want you to see something. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm kind of stealing some of my thunder, but you'll forget by the time we get there. But I'll remind you. Hebrews 11 talking about these people who, who, who walk by faith. And he goes all the way back to Abel, Enoch, talks about Noah, Abraham, and Sarah. And then look at verse 13. What does it say? These all died in faith, not having received the promises. Did they get the promises? No. Did they receive the promise of eternal inheritance? No. Look at verse 39. I mean, because we go on, we read about Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Barak, Barak. I think we pronounce it that way, it's a little better. Barak, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now, all of these patriarchs, all of these heroes of the faith, some escaped the edge of the sword, some did not. But come down to verse 39. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Go back to chapter 9. That by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. How are these Old Testament patriarchs going to receive the promise of eternal inheritance? Who's covering their sins? David, Nathan tells David, the Lord hath set aside your sin. But it has to be paid for. You can't just set aside sin forever, can you? No. How did God deal with this? Well, we are, this is explained to us in detail in Romans chapter 3. Keep your finger there in Hebrews and go back to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, and this is such a wonderful passage. And you know what? 
as you, the more familiar you become with your Bibles and the more you see how these things fit together and you understand God's plan of salvation, it never ceases to amaze. Look what's going on here in Romans chapter 3. He's been speaking about the law. And in verse 21, but, now he's just said that that by the deeds of the law, verse 20, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for the law just makes us all realize we're sinners. By the law is the knowledge of sin. The law can only condemn. The law cannot make you righteous. Dead works will not purge your conscience. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ, unto all and upon all them that believe. For there is no difference for all have sinned. No matter if you're Jew or Greek, male or female, for all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. But now we can be justified, says being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Note verse 25, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation. There's that word, propitiation, a satisfaction. What was satisfied? God's wrath. Jesus Christ was set forth to take God's wrath. What does the Bible say? God poured out His wrath on His Son there on the cross. God's wrath for sin. And you think about that. Think about all that you have sinned. And think about all the sins of the ages that were there heaped upon Christ. And you think about the, you know, the magnitude of that. And God's wrath says, whom God has set forth, He set forth His Son Jesus to be a propitiation through faith in His, what? In His blood. The mediator must die. If we are to be saved. Through faith in His blood, and then it says to declare His righteousness. Whose righteousness? God's righteousness. For declaring Old Testament saints to be righteous. How can a just judge declare David to be forgiven without killing him for what he did? How can that be a just judge? How can God be just in declaring Abraham to be righteous? And he does that in Romans chapter 4. He talks about two examples. Abraham being declared righteous. David being declared righteous. God declaring ungodly men to be righteous. That's unjust. A just judge cannot declare sinners to be righteous without payment. This is exactly what's going on in Hebrews chapter 9. And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant that by means of his death for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. And here is God, and he is just 
in declaring David to be righteous. He is just in declaring Abraham to be righteous. He is just in declaring Abel to be righteous there in Hebrews 11. And how is he just in doing that? Because of this, Jesus Christ came at God's appointed time to be the sin offering in whom God has set forth to be a propitiation or a satisfaction of God's wrath through faith in his blood to declare God's righteousness for remitting the sins that are past. God was righteous in doing that because God's plan had those sins paid for in Christ at Calvary. And it says here, for to declare his God's righteousness for remitting the sins that were past, those sins under the First Testament, through the forbearance of God. God was patient. He set those things aside. And he did not demand payment immediately from David. It was a deferred payment program, we might say. And Jesus Christ is the one who paid it in full, once and for all at Calvary. And God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare God's righteousness for remitting the sins that were passed through His forbearance, through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, His, right, His righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Jesus. Because of the death of the mediator, God can be a just judge in declaring us who have put our faith in Jesus to be righteous. That's amazing. God can declare me to be just as if he looks at me as if I had never sinned because I have the righteousness of Jesus Christ attributed to my account by faith in Jesus Christ, if by faith in his shed blood. His blood did it with the blood of bulls and of goats, the ashes of an heifer, and that whole old system, that whole old covenant system of worship could never do. It could not cleanse the conscience. The blood of Jesus Christ satisfied God's wrath, and it also cleanses our conscience so that we might acceptably serve God. He is just in justifying those who believe in Jesus. Back to Hebrews chapter 9. God cannot declare people righteous without satisfaction for their transgressions. But he has done this, and he has done this because of Jesus Christ, who is the mediator of the New Testament. How much more can I say? It's there, and it's, as, it's crystal clear. Look at God's wonderful plan of salvation. How does, how does the meteor die at a point in time, and yet his blood is effective for the sins of the past, and his blood is effective for the sins that were future? Our sins. And the thing is, you think about it. You think about the wrath of God and the infinite debt of man's sin. And the greatness of man's sin 
And what did it require? It required an infinite payment. And you talk about the worth of our infinite sacrifice, Jesus Christ, and what His blood accomplished. I would have to say that our sin is not infinite because His blood is infinite. And where sin abounded, what did much more abound? What superabounded? Grace. And the blood of Christ Jesus cleanses us from all sin, purges the conscience so that we might serve the living God. Next week we'll continue. In the next verse is looking at this idea of a testament, and talking about the death of the mediator on our behalf. But I wanted to encourage you today to go back through this passage and look at it. And it's, it's a wonderful passage speaking of our high priest. And our high priest who is not just the priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And that was never seen in the Old Testament. It was never the blood of a priest that was shed. But our high priest became the sacrifice. And his blood cleanses our conscience, purges it from dead works to serve the living God. Has that blood been applied to you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for our great mediator. Lord, all of this, your plan, your terms. Lord, as we consider our redemption, we consider the offense of our sin against a holy God, we realize that we had no, we really hadn't, we had no demands. Lord, we could not set the terms of our redemption, but you set them, and Lord, they were favorable toward us. You commended your love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ, our high priest, our mediator, died for us so that we might be reconciled to God. Father, thank you so much for your plan of salvation. May we rejoice in it. Lord, may our love for you increase. And Lord, may it be visible through our obedience to your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.